Hello, and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Searching fear of rejection on Google returns about 16 million results. You can find six ways to conquer the fear, as well as seven tips to overcome it. eHarmony.com even claims they can eliminate the fear for good. Lead teacher Randy Pope starts a new series entitled Facing Your Fears, with this message entitled The Fear of Rejection, which covers Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 through 7. Thank you for joining us today. I do hope that this is the beginning of a great year uh, for all. And in light of that, what I like to do most years is to spend these first few weeks of the new year addressing some emotion that you and I deal with on an everyday basis from God's Word. How do we see God's teaching about a particular emotion that we may battle? This year, we're approaching the emotion of fear. We're all familiar with fear, true for all. You know, there's uh, a lot of reality shows coming out now on fear. We're all familiar with the, uh, with the one, The Fear Factor, and, um, you know, you face your, you know, the extremes of height or speed or uh, having to eat detestable things or being put in environments with stuff that just freak you out. And, uh, but if you go online like I did this week, I went online and just said, uh, reality TV fear, to see all these different small shows that are coming up and on little off-brand stations and so forth. But there are numerous, numerous ones coming out. And I do believe that we are a people who are enamored with folks who can face fears successfully. I think because most of us assume we wouldn't do so well facing those same fears. And we're amazed when people can do that. You and I are amazed when people face the greatest of fears that I think surpass any that have been mentioned on any of those television reality shows. Because I think there's some that, that literally, they, uh, they dwarf in comparison those types of fears. They're fears such as rejection, which we look at this week. Failure, we look at next week. The fear of death, the third week. All fears that are so real to all of us. This idea of rejection, we all understand what it means to feel rejected, and it does not feel good. Probably most of us at some time have either been in the situation where you are the one or you watch someone else go through the experience of being chosen for a game. And you know that if you're the one that I'm talking about, you're not good at that particular sport or activity, whatever it is. And so two captains begin to choose out of a pool of people. I'll take, I'll take John, you take, I'll take so-and-so. And it gets down, and you're now in the final three or four, and something's happening in your heart. It's just getting to the point it's about to explode. And your greatest fear comes true. You're the last one to be chosen. And the one who's now the captain and to choose you last offers you to the other team. No greater humiliation, the sense of rejection. Many of you as young people here, our school-age kids, you're battling it every day. The craving for acceptance, 
the great fear of rejection. But it doesn't stop in high school years. It goes on through life. Every one of us experience it. Many of you here know too well the memory of that look in the parent's eye or the sound of that parent's voice where they let you know that though you know you've given it your best, that you're not meeting standards and you're not being approved of and you feel rejection. The parents would be quick to say, oh, we don't reject you. You know better. You can sense it. You feel it. The very youngest of age, we take a vow. I'm going to avoid rejection. I'm going to embrace acceptance, whatever the cost may be. And the cost sometimes runs pretty high. One cost that kids are learning very quickly that they can pay to be brought into the inner circle, at least of some group, is conformity. Just conform to the group, whatever it takes. And parents say, why do you dress that way? Why do you act this way? Why do you choose the friends that you choose? And inside, the child is screaming, because they are the ones that accept me, and no one else does. And we don't understand that pain. Vulgarity, immorality, all kind of payments that kids are willing to pay, even though deep down inside they don't like living like that. They know it's not the way, but they say it is the ticket. It is the free pass to acceptance from somebody. And so in an ungodly world, the best way is to conform to ungodliness, and at least I get some acceptance the way it works. I can remember as a, as a kid, I was overweight. I was born overweight. I stayed overweight when I was a little kid. And I remember the, the comments, the nicknames, and I remember saying this, mm-mm, I'll, I'll, I'll figure out the disciplines it takes so that I don't have to face that all my life. You've got your own experience. We all have them, do we not? We're going to vow against rejection, and we crave acceptance. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at, uh, at four realities the first three of the four realities are going to be very brief. The first a little bit longer than the other two. The other two very, very brief. But these first three, I'm just stating some realities of life. I'm not teaching from God's Word. This is not a thus saith the Lord. It's just, hey, let's, let's build a platform so that when we come to God's Word, it's meaningful when we see what He has to say because we need to understand the experiences of life. So let me start. And by the way, we're going to be in that fourth point, we're going to be in Isaiah 43. So if you have your Bibles, I'll inter- encourage you to even be turning there now, Isaiah 43. But let's quickly look at these first three observations. The first is simply this. We fear rejection when self-esteem is fragile. There's a noted psychologist who has written, the vast majority of those between 12 and 20 are bitterly disappointed in who they are. Maybe you're not 12 to 20. If you are, think about now. If you're not, think about then. Go back when you were 12 to 20 years of age and ask yourself this question. Was I one of those people that was bitterly disappointed in who I was at that age? And I bet if we're honest, we'd see a large, large, large number of us that say, I was disappointed. Didn't like who I was at that age. There are notable contributors to that, and I'm going to pick three of many I know. But see how many of us relate to some of these three. First is parental criticism. Parents just criticizing us. And maybe in offhanded ways, different ways, but we all know the experience of the house of mirrors. 
that house of mirror where we walk in it as we're born into life and the parents are the mirrors and we just hear nothing but, no, no, not good enough. No, 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 uh-uh. And everything is saying to us, oh, we just don't matter. Not unless we perform, and I don't think I can perform the way I need to perform in order to matter, and therefore, conclusion, I don't matter. You take a little kid, let him be born in a literal room with mirrors that are distorted. And they distort it in such a way that when you see yourself, you see yourself as either very, very thin or maybe obese. Doesn't matter. Though you have the opportunity to look at what you can see of yourself and you just know what you see, but when you look in the mirror, you see something so different. You see it so much. It won't take long. That child growing into adulthood will believe what they see in that mirror. And that's what's happening to kids all the time with simple criticism of parents. And parents, we need to be very, very careful. We need to affirm our kids. We need to let them know they matter. We need to encourage them in many different ways. This is not a series on, on uh, raising children, but it is an important application for sure. Number two, personal comparisons. The virtues of this day and age, beauty, intelligence, aptitude or talent. That's how the world esteems people. Just how do, you, how do you stack up? How do you compare to others in those arenas? As a result, a school today can be a very, very dangerous place for an average kid. And a kid who's now average feels that they're unworthy. Where average should be viewed as great. Look, you're right in the middle of all. How good. But no, that's not the way you see it today. We live in an age of superstars, and we compare, and when we do, we lose. And so personal comparisons, a vital component to that. A third is relational calamities. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about this later, but probably the ultimate of all, all rejections would be that of divorce. And large, large numbers of us here have walked through that experience. And when a spouse decides that they don't want you and they leave the marriage because of what they see in you of who you are, can't help but see a sense of deep rejection. I've watched in other people to see a a downward spiral of people's lives as soon as that happens. They never can see themselves as valuable. They have such a deep sense of rejection. James Dobson author of the book, Hide and Seek, he puts it this way. He said, whenever the keys of self-esteem are seemingly out of reach for a large percentage of the people, as in 20th century America, then widespread mental illness, neuroticism, hatred, alcoholism, drug abuse, violence, and social disorder will certainly occur. Personal worth is not something human beings are free to take or leave. That's very important. That's so true. We must have it, and when it is unattainable, Everybody suffers. So let's look at a second observation, simply this. The fear of rejection creates an excessive need for acceptance. We need now even more acceptance because I fear the idea of being rejected. So, okay, how do I get the kind of acceptance that I need? Well, what happens in this kind of scenario is that there's a distortion of the ability to have normal and healthy relationships. I bet many of you could share similar stories. I think of 
I think of a, a couple, the man came to me, uh, of a man that I think is one of the finest of, of husbands. And his wife would say the same. But he comes to me and he says, you know, I, I don't think I can convince my wife that I love her. I tell her I love her. I treat her in a way that expresses love on a regular basis. But she just can't believe it. And what she hears is, well, I hear and I see what you're saying, but her comment would be this over and over. I know you act like you love me, and I know you tell me you love me, but I know you don't. Why do you say I don't love you? The woman didn't even understand. The reason is because she didn't feel lovable. All you got to do is trace back, look at these three influences in her life, and you can see there it goes. It happens that way. And so we've got to be so careful of these environments. They are so very, very, very dangerous. Lecrae, you might know that name. He's the, uh, one of the top hip-hop artists of today. In fact, in one of our, uh, he's here in Atlanta, godly, godly man. I've not met him, but I hear of him because he's in one of our uh, church plants and uh, very committed to that church. And he makes this statement. He says, if you live for people's acceptance... You will die at their rejection. And that is so true. Third observation, very quickly. We overcome the fear of rejection when we matter to our most important audience. We all need an audience that accepts us, do we not? And we'll figure a way to find that audience, whoever it takes. Whatever they may, may believe, what they do, doesn't seem to matter. Just please give me people that accept me. I think it's important that we limit our exposure as we have the right to do so and appropriately to limit exposure to those people who degrade us, who, who humiliate us, who put us down. But I want to hear, you hear this very carefully. That is when it is biblically appropriate to do so. And there is a new theology today that says, if something hurts me, I have the right to reject it and to move away from it. Not always the case. Certain times we're in marriages that are less than ideal. There's no biblical grounds for this particular case for divorce. And therefore, maybe the, the spouse is doing things and saying things that make you feel belittled and so forth and so on, and you don't really have the option to leave that marriage. Or maybe it's a, maybe it's a employer and maybe you don't have the opportunity to leave one employment and just find the next immediately, and you know good and well that you are, you're blessed to have a job, but your employer is constantly putting you down and putting you down and making you have the sense you don't matter. You don't have the opportunity just to leave. You've got to have employment. Well, here's one that's obvious. What about parents? We've already talked about it. So you're the 12-year-old that hears the parent constantly belittling you and telling you you don't matter in so many ways, and it's not a healthy environment. But you can't say, hey, I don't like you guys. I'm going to find some new parents. It's not an option, right? So often we just have to live with it. We've been looking in the wrong places, but folks, there are places we can go. And I'm going to suggest a starting point, not what God's teaching in our passage, but a starting point obviously is this, put around you people that are people that you should be around 
godly people, people that will love you for who you are and keep reminding you of how special you are. But folks, there is one audience that we look at now. It's the audience of one. It's the greatest of all audiences, and you know who it is. It's God himself. And if he is or he becomes our number one audience, then let me tell you, we can overcome rejection. So let's turn in our Bibles to Isaiah 43. The fourth observation, which comes from God's Word, God intends for his people to know that they matter to him. Folks, let me tell you, when I say that, I mean this is the story of God's Word. you got to know this. I mean, he intends it to such a degree that he is just declaring it in so many ways. By word and by deed, he's saying, you matter to me. You've got to know you matter to me. And if you matter to me and you don't believe it, then you don't benefit as you need. So it's my job as a teacher of God's word to try to take his word and, and try to take the words that he said and let you hear them clearly. So I want you to hear his word. Let me give you the background and then we read the text. The background is this. This is written by Isaiah the prophet. He is writing to a people, the Jewish people who are a very special people to him. He has taken a family, actually a man and his family, Abraham, and he is through that one man, he has built a family, a people, a nation that he has chosen not because they're better people than any of the others, but because he is going to model for the world his love, he raises up a family called the Israelites. And he's going to model extreme grace and love to them. Not without cost. There's going to be heavy cost. In the Old Testament, there's going to be the cost of other nations that suffer at the hand of God in the effort to deliver this people. We don't really understand that in full. The bigger picture, though, is a deliverance that's far greater than from other nations. It's going to be a deliverance from our own sin. He's going to model his love in that way. These are a people who have been very disobedient. And in their disobedience, there is consequence, even in the midst of love. And how many people cannot get this? That consequences does not mean that God doesn't love. A parent giving consequences to a child does not mean that the parent doesn't love the child. In fact, it's just the opposite. And so the consequence is they are in captivity under a people called Babylon. And they're being put down. They're being mistreated. They have no option to leave. It's not, their, it's, not even, it's not even possible. And so they've got to be thinking, okay, God, you control my circumstances. And obviously, we don't matter too much to you. And these people that we're around all the time, the mirrors of the house we live in, are constantly telling us we're worthless, valueless, no good at all. And God, through the prophet Isaiah, says, oh, you've got to hear the truth here. Truth will make all the difference in the world. And so he gives us that truth in the book of Isaiah, chapter 43. Seven verses, one through seven, we'll read them. Listen carefully. We will not be able to touch all of this. I'm going to pull just a few things from it. I think you will find very helpful as we battle the fear of rejection. Verse one, but now thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear. There's the word. Do not fear. He's going to give reason now. Four good reasons. Number one, 
for I have redeemed you. Number two, I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Number three, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom. There's a deep cost there for their redemption. Cush and Seba in your place. They go through much hardship, pain, and death in the deliverance of the Israelite people. Verse 4, since you are precious in my sight, and there's the fourth, you are precious in my sight. Since you are honored and I love you, I will give other men in your place, other peoples in exchange for your life. Little do we realize in the reading of this prophecy that the one who would be given is really going to be the Son of God. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. I just want to remind you, this is the infallible, inspired Word of God given to us for life and practice. We can embrace it, and we are blessed when we do. Let's jump into this just very, very briefly. Four things we read about what God is saying to affirm His love, that we are special, that we matter. The first is, I have redeemed you. Look at the text in verse 43, verse 1. He says, but now, thus says the Lord, your creator, Jacob, who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. He's going to say it again in verse 3. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom. Cush and Seba in your place. Verse 4, last part of the verse, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Folks, we don't understand the ways of God. But we do understand this, that he's made it clear that there has to be a cost for a people to be delivered from their sin. And so God is going to show mercy and grace in abundance to the Israelites. And that's his message. I will show you grace, but there will be a cost involved. Not just to you, but even to others. Some who aren't innocent, these nations such as Cush and Seba and others. But there's going to be one who's going to pay a cost. He didn't deserve it. And that's our Lord Jesus takes us to the New Testament, Ephesians 1, verse 7. In him, that's Christ, we have redemption, that's redeeming, through his blood, his death, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. All of this was to point them to a Messiah that would be coming. They say, look, I'm going to redeem you, but it's going to take one other. It's going to take one other than just the people's of this world. It will take the Son of God. So he begins by saying, I've redeemed you. Well, you can imagine the thinking of God perhaps here to say, well, you know, if I tell the people that I've redeemed them, that's not going to be sufficient because that means I own them and that's good. But people can own things they don't like. They can own things they actually hate. So he's not going to stop there. Number two, 
He says, I have called you by name. Hmm. I've called you by name. I was going to give illustrations in my own life experience. I thought of a number of them where someone that I think of as far more important and, and more known and so forth as I am would ever be, uh, who maybe I've had opportunity to meet and get to know in some form or fashion and maybe think, oh, they wouldn't remember, and then maybe they contact you or you have opportunity to be back and they know your name and they remember, and, well, there's something about that. We go, wow, that is so, that just makes you feel so good. But I'd rather you think, who's somebody in your life experience Maybe the most famous person, the most noted person, it may not be somebody that's very, very famous, but somebody that you would just, it just made you feel so good that they would say to you, hey, call you by name? Wouldn't have thought you would have known my name. It just makes you feel special. And so what God is saying here is, look, I own you, but I want you to know you're not just owned by me, you are known by me. I know you. I can and do call you by name. Well, that's good, but maybe not good enough. Because what if somebody owns you? What if that God who owns you and knows you, but just isn't with you, isn't present, isn't near? And so thirdly, his statement, I will be with you. And we see in verse 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. In verse 5, do not fear, for I am with you. This is the story of our Christmas Eve, Emmanuel, God with us. And so he says, hey, you need to know this. I own you. Yeah. I know you. And I want you to know that I am with you. There was a tribe I was uh, recently learning about of Indians that would have, a, that would have a, um, a ritual of sorts to take a child into adulthood, a male child into adulthood, to become a warrior. And the father would take the son out into the woods that were very dangerous, filled with all kind of wild beasts and dangers that, you know, just all around. And take this little 12-year-old and give them a knife. That's all they had, a knife. And the parent would say, I'll be back in 24 hours. One day from now, I'll come back. And if you survive, you've become a warrior. Can you imagine how a 12-year-old would feel in that circumstance? Can you imagine the fear experienced? The reality was, though, the child didn't know it because it was kept secret that the father would always be in sight of that child for 24 hours. And if something did happen and the child couldn't survive, they were there, always there. Can you imagine the difference the child would approach that 24 hours if that child knew that my dad is right around the corner? I can't see him, but he's watching me. He's promised to deliver me. Folks, that's the story of our God. How many of us say, I don't feel God's presence. I don't see God near. I don't understand. I mean, look at the wild beasts that are coming at me, and, and he's not doing anything. But let me tell you, he's protecting you from the worst of all. He's saying, mm -mm, nothing's going to happen to you. I got you stored up for eternity. 
And so he says, I'm with you. But you know, even being with you, maybe he is with us, but maybe we're not special. Maybe he doesn't really love us. So he ends this explanation of how much we matter with number four. Number four, I am the Lord your God. You are precious in my sight, and I love you. Couldn't say it any better. Verse four, since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored, and I love you. Makes it pretty clear. Precious, honored, love you. He's just saying it every way he can. It's the same as the New Testament variety in 1 Peter where he says that you are a special people. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a, a holy nation, a people for my own possession. And that's just his statement. He's saying it Old Testament. He's saying it New Testament. He's saying, guys, you got to get this. You are my people. And if you believe that and you know what that means, then listen, you're going to be able to handle rejection in the smallest form on this earth because you will be accepted by me, your God. But I think some of us have to kind of come clean and be honest and say, God's not my most important audience. I'll take the acceptance of other people. I'll take, I'll take it in a, in a heartbeat because, I mean, God, that's the stuff's important, but let me tell you, I got to have it now. Folks, you'll never have a chance to overcome this fear. Put God as your number one audience but even that is not good enough unless you truly believe that he's redeemed you, he's called you, he's with you, and he, is, he loves you, you're precious in his sight. If you don't buy that, rejection will be more than we can handle. Let me close with this. Talk is cheap. Okay, so what, your fiancé... Let's say, ladies, your fiancé has been telling you for years how much he loves you. There's a come a time where you say, either put up or shut up. You keep saying you love me. Why won't you marry me? I'm not sure you do love me if you won't marry me. I want to see some action behind the talk. God says, I'm going to give you the action. The action is the cross of the Lord Jesus, my son. And it takes us to the last verse I need to show you, Romans 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's why I always take you back to the cross because you can hear of God's love, but till you see it and know what he's done at the cross of Jesus Christ, only then can you really believe, well, he must, he must have redeemed me. He gave his son for the redemption price. Boy, he must have called me. He must know me by name. Boy, he must be with me. There could be no other way. He must love me. He would have never done what he's done. Always go to the cross of Jesus Christ. Do you believe you matter to God? Until you do, no overcoming of rejection. I'd like to do this. I'd like to read a letter, and I'm going to show you a little chart. We close. It's a letter I've kept now for quite a while. Someone wrote me and said, I am overwhelmed by where God has brought me in these last two years in my relationship with Jesus Christ. Prior to coming to Perimeter, I thought I was a Christian, but God's son wasn't somebody I knew personally. 
I was raised to believe my self-worth and significance were bonded to my success, goodness, and acceptance by others. Outwardly, I became successful. Inwardly, I was dying. Can any of you relate to this person's statement thus far? I bet there are many of you. I talked to some of you after the last service and last night. I know it's the case. I had many wounds, some from my father. Are we surprised? Didn't we say parental criticism, rejection is one of the most serious things? I battled anorexia for six years, then bulimia. My dad demanded that I move away from home when he discovered my eating disorder. Inside myself, I lived some awful years while keeping the exterior self, meeting expectations I thought were important. To make it short, I praise God for the healing in my life over these two years, for his real love for me, and for the significant people in these years who have encouraged me and shown me a life in Jesus Christ. You see how new mirrors were put up in this person's life? That's why we constantly say, get in a journey group around here. Get around people that are going to be good mirrors with the truth every week being fed. This person ends by saying, my esteem continues to grow by leaps and bounds, and God gives me more confidence to take risks as God leads me into continuous life for him. It was years later this person came on our staff. God had done an amazing work in their lives. Show you this little... Uh, this little picture here, events happen in our life. I don't know what your event may be. The event may be, well, a, uh, it could be a divorce, a desertion, a spouse deserts you. Uh, maybe the event of rejection is that uh, you as a high schooler are, are not allowed to be with the friends of your choice, and they have rejected you because of whatever reason. They don't want you to be part of their group any longer. I don't know what the event may be. We all have our events of rejection. That leads, though, to the box belief. You and I have certain beliefs. Those beliefs are so important. We have no idea how important they are. Even this morning, as I was rehearsing this early, I had this thought. I said, Lord, I'm thankful that I get to be a part of a church that's not an event-oriented church. It's a process-oriented church. The reason I even thought about it was because I was asking myself the question, will my preaching make any difference today? Well, my time spent on this and the effort, does it really matter? Because the truth of it is, this sermon is not going to have a huge impact on a lot of people. But this and messages like this that take you to the cross and give truth from God's Word week in and week out and week in and week out, it's going to have an impact. I know that. Because it changes the belief system. How many people here have said, oh, thank you for the teaching here because that the whole teaching team gives because it's given me a belief system that carries me. But beliefs are going to take, it's going to take a route here of our thinking. How are we going to think about life? A belief shaped the way we think. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So thinking is vitally important. Then our thinking is going to take us to how we feel. Our feeling begins to, to take shape. But we have to learn that even there, our feelings will never be a measure of what we believe and know. And if we'll think the truth when we're feeling opposite, then we've won the battle. So I'm meeting with a young man this week. And he's just in the development of life and spiritual life and so forth. And we're talking and, 
And he's going through struggles and he says, but this, and then I feel this, and I feel this, but I feel this, and I keep listening. Finally, I say, stop. I've heard feel over and over and over. What you're feeling is not real. It's not the truth. You, I keep hearing you say things that are just not true according to the word of God. You're thinking wrongly. You're feeling wrongly. Can you just move away from your feelings and let's, let's get away from the subjective for a bit and start living in the objective? Both are vitally important. But your thinking and beliefs have got to be the dominant force of your life. Let your feelings come out of it. And then when the feelings are opposite the truth, then you deny the feelings and say, you know, with that, I know I feel it. But you know what? I feel that God's not fair, but I know you are. And I'm going to hang on to that thinking and that truth. That's how you find freedom. You'll know the truth and the truth sets you free. Then we can go down to action. Now we can get to the action that we need. We're able to live obediently and faithfully. And then the the emotions began to take care of themselves. This is so vitally important to follow this. And instead of event, wrong belief, wrong thinking, terrible feelings, now I just can't act correctly. And that's where many of us have probably found ourselves in year past and year forward. Let's move away from that. Let's go to the realities that you are special in God's sight. If you're not special, go to the cross. Meet him right now. Invite his love to take your life and you'll know he has when you fall in love with him to the degree that you want to follow. Then you're a child of God. I hope this next year is going to be a year for all where we wake up in the morning, spite of circumstances, and say, I matter to God, and that's good enough. As we pray together, let's pray. Father in heaven, grant that we might do just this as we have talked. May your love overwhelm us. And may we find that our beliefs and our thinking dictate even our feelings. And when not, we'll always go with the truth that you give us. May we act out of love to you. May we meet you at the cross now for forgiveness that we need and to experience your love. We thank you. We ask it all in the great name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia, with services Saturday night at 6 and Sunday morning at 9 and 1045. Please visit our website for more information at www.perimeter.org. Be sure to visit the media resources section to give us your feedback and find other messages from our teaching team.